Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new Black Magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Black Magic, and we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now, cue the music. Hey, welcome to the 50th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, storytelling, and directing. I'm Matt Enlow. And I'm Oren Kaplan. And today we have another Oren on the show, Oren Brimmer, a director, writer, producer, editor that has a lot of really cool credits. He worked on The Daily Show. He was a producer on an HBO show coming out next year called Crashing. He was a producer and director on The Pete Holmes Show on TBS. And he's at the heart and soul like a writer-director of like web content like us and he has a lot of really interesting tidbits yeah he's a living proof of just shooting it turning it into a career that we all would love he's a real cool guy stay tuned everyone it's the clash of the orans but first oran what have you been working on lately so i've actually this week i've been working for funnier die i've done post stuff for them before i do like a lot of vfx for them but they finally hired me to direct uh, we always talk about trying to define yourself in this industry. And no matter how many times I tell them that I'm a director, not an editor, they keep trying to hire me to edit stuff. And finally, they are hiring me to direct something. So I'm directing a cool branded spot with them for Call of Duty, Infinite Warfare, which is a new Call of Duty game that's coming out November 4th. And it's fun. It's a sketch. It's, you know, as usual, I wish we had more time and more money. And I think I will go into it a little bit more during the podcast when we're talking to Oren. But I'm excited to work with a new company that people have heard of. It's Funny or Die. Have you worked for them before? I have, yeah. I've done one sketch with them before. Okay. They're an interesting company because they're kind of famous, but they're famous in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. But they're not as prolific as like the College Humors and the Break, right. you know, Defy Media and all those other companies. So it's fun. I'm I'm curious to see how it goes. Everyone there is super cool. Yeah, it's a great group of people. And yeah. It's fun. I mean, Call of Duty. I'm I'm really enjoying this like kind of comedy video game spots because maybe I can own that niche. Yeah, this is uh how many have you done now? I did Mom of Duty for Rooster right. Teeth and we did a bunch of video game related things then I did that Yokai Watch Wibble Wobble commercial right, a couple right. weeks ago and then I'm being put up now for a Candy Crush 
commercial, yeah, which I've actually it. done Candy Crush before many years ago. So, yeah, maybe video game commercials. Well, that's a perfect uh, blend of, um, you know, comedy and commercial work and then also VFX. So that makes complete sense. Yeah. For um, once. For once. It makes sense. Finally. Life. So, yeah, so that's me. Uh, what exactly have you been working on lately? Yeah, well, I just had a video for The New Yorker, blah, blah, blah. I've been on set a little bit more recently, which has been really nice because it's been more of a writing year, but it's funny. I'm still kind of all the things that I've been developing over this year. I'm just now kind of taking out and I'm, I'm pitching and I'm, you know, going to agencies and kind of like people joke about the, the water bottle, the water bottle tour, but I feel like I'm kind of on that and going to even more coffees than typical. And I love going to coffees as people know. So that's been really great. But uh, it's a different part of the job. You're kind of like, the job is be charming or, or inspire confidence in people. And, you know, it's funny, I think, as directors, that's not what you're signing up for, typically. Like, the reason you be- become a director is not because, like, you want to, like, go to coffees with actors. You know what right. I mean? But it is, I but mean... it's the job. That is it. It's important. I think, like, the most important part of directing is, like, confidence right sure sure. which is the same to me is the same as being decisive Mm -hmm. right making decisions just being able to trust yourself all that stuff is kind of all the same idea so i always say a double espresso thank you (laughs) exactly so when you go into a meeting and you need to be charming and charismatic i don't know that is you're basically trying to get people to trust you which is Mm -hmm. the same thing when you're working with actors or when you're working with camera people or when you're working with editors is like hey, I have, I'm thinking here and I have an idea and mm-hmm. let's do it because it, it can be really cool. And I think if you, the hardest part is convincing yourself of that. And if right. you can do that, then you can go to these meetings. I'm curious when you're meeting with these companies and trying to be charming and charismatic and look cool and busy and in demand, sure. do you talk about all the other projects you have going on to kind of make Some- sure they know that, so you don't need them? Yeah, sometimes I'll tee it up. I think the good news is, is that I'm typically talking about a specific project and the reason that they're taking the meeting is because they see some sort of potential in the project in the first place. So I, I don't have that threshold that I have to cross. Whereas like earlier this year, certainly there were times where it was like, oh, what have you been doing? And you're like, well, uh, sitting in my apartment on my computer is the answer. So I kind of had to do a little bit more tap dancing than... Now, the thing that's funny when we talk about being funny and charming is like there's being funny to other writers or film nerds or even on set, you know, there's a specific brand of comedy that you can kind of play with where you can be a little like self-deprecating or weird or gross or whatever it is. But like when you're in like a agency and you're at the giant marble table and there's like a fifty thousand dollar painting hanging on the wall and two suits are in front of you it's a lot harder to like you know make a reference to a you know hey arnold episode or something that you know it's harder to crush in those rooms so i think that having a good icebreaker is really good i had a couple of real groaners (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm grown central so don't feel bad yeah it's okay they just want to make money from me anyway so right we'll, we'll see if that works or not well, cool. I hope it does. Can't wait to Me too. Uh, see your movies in the theater on billboards. Yeah, I'm just typing right now. 
Well, this was great. I can't wait to hop into our conversation with the other Oren, Oren Brimmer. Uh, technically, just so you guys all know, Oren 2. I'm Oren 1. <laughs> Got it. Hey, folks, we're interrupting this incredible episode of the podcast to tell you about a new sponsor that we're working with, Front Row Insurance Brokers. One of the challenges of being a filmmaker is that there's a lot of risks that we take, and we really just want to focus on making good stuff. So what if there was a company that could take those risks, manage them for us while we are being artists? That's right. Front Row Insurance Brokers arranges film production insurance to cover the risks associated with your production. They cover features, TV shows, documentaries, commercials, music videos, webisodes, basically anything you can watch on big media or phone-sized screens. Yeah, Front Row will help you focus on your artistic vision by transferring all the risks to them and minimizing your production hazards. And they cover any budget from $2,000 all the way up to $200 million. There's nothing that's too small or too big. If you are shooting in Canada, use coupon code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF for 50 bucks off your film production insurance. That's promo code JUSTSHOOTIT50OFF to save 50 bucks. And if you're shooting in the U.S., that same code can be redeemed offline by mentioning it to a broker, by email, or over the phone. It's like a cool password if you're in the U.S. That's just shoot it 50 off. Check him out. Let us know how it goes. So, hey, we're here with Oren Brimmer. Hi. Not Brimer. Not Brimer. Despite the one M. Double Oren episode. Yeah. So I've known of Oren. I think it's possible this might be only be the second time I'm in the same room with you right. in our lives, but I've known of Oren for like a very, very long time, like 20 years ago. Yeah, we're actually like second degree family friends from yeah. our Israeli parents. Yeah, so yeah. When, when I was making videos for like YouTube, my friends were always like, oh, we, have, we know another Oren that makes videos for YouTube. And I was like, eh, I don't <laughs> quite think you do. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, it was like, what year? It was like nine, like 2000 or something. Yeah. Like before YouTube existed. <laughs> yeah. When we were still um, uploading to Rever. Right. <laughs> and so then I met you and I was like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'm going to get Oren.com and that's going to be the end of that. That's it. Did you get it? No, but I just got directed by Oren. Okay. And I have Oren Comedy. Ooh, okay. that's pretty good. You got, I don't want that one. Okay, that's cool. I mean, it's fine. <laughs> oh, but I have Oren film. You have Oren film. Okay. Yeah, I have Oren drama. <laughs> um, yeah, no, my wife, Kara, was saying that, I was like, yeah, I'm going to get directed by Oren.com. And she's like, but there's like another Oren that does like the exact same thing you do. I was yeah. like, yeah, there's a lot of Orens. Like, what if you got directed by Matt.com? Should you, she's like, just get directed by Oren Kaplan. And it's just way too long of a URL. Yeah. So. Sorry, dude. Or I, just, yeah. or you can just shorten that to OrenKaplan.com. Yeah. Oh, no, that's taken, unfortunately. Really? Yeah. Who is he? Oren Kaplan. <laughs> what does he do, though? What is he? Uh, he's like some physics professor or something. Ugh. He's way cooler. The, the Matt-in-law who had MattInlow.com was a math teacher, is a math teacher. Really? And I was nerd. so jealous. Such a nerdy name. Yeah. Why are teachers buying their domains? He, he was really into blogging, like, oh. like before blogging was even trendy. Mm-hmm. And still does it now that it's very passe. Oh my god! Yeah, but students, it's a great guy. I mean, if I was a teacher, I'd have a website. Yeah, he's talking a lot about like a funny thing that happened in the classroom today. Oh, it's not like about parabolas and stuff. Well, he works that into. He's so hyperbolic, that guy. <laughs> um, well, a good thing that celebrity will get you is the ability to contact those people and ask for it. 
We have uh, tweeted back and forth a little bit. Really? Yeah, yeah. He does not give a fuck about me. Yeah, <laughs> that that echelon of fame and fortune is the yeah. only thing I'm striving for, where I can get Orin.com. Yeah, there you go. Just force it out of the hands of whoever has no, that was six like, figures on it. I think Orin was a semiconductor company or something. Yeah, it had, uh, and it had a pine tree logo because Orin means pine in Hebrew. Uh, right. Well, so then I saw you a lot on Super Deluxe. Right. Because I was doing shows there and you had stuff going on there I had stuff there. My shows didn't come out because... But you were uploading also like your own stuff. Yes, I was was uploading. Doing really well on the site. Yeah, when you would upload all your videos to every site out there in Mm -hmm. hopes that they'd get featured. And then... Including Atom.com, which is where where we kind of started to communicate, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Um, so you were kind of in all all that. And then even up until super recently when you worked with Sawhorse on Mm -hmm. the Pepsi halftime show. Yeah. Where they would like accidentally email me things that were meant for you. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm always like, wrong, Oren. Yeah. That's the problem with autocomplete. I'm following you everywhere you go. You guys are in a prime position to sabotage the other. Yeah. Yeah. It's a race (laughs) to the death. I went and peed on. The only Oren is what this episode will be called. I peed in the HBO office reception. And I was like, I'm Oren. (laughs) Go to my website, (laughs) orencomedy.com. Then I ran out Same names. Same Um, (laughs) names. So now you're a filmmaker. You direct, you write. I am a filmmaker. I I write, I direct, I produce. Web. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, so you didn't go to film school. I did not go to film school. You made a bunch of web videos. I made a bunch of web videos with my friends on a mini DV camcorder. I didn't know the first thing about lighting. I didn't know the first thing about how to make stuff, but I knew how to point a camera at a thing and hit record. I put up a piece of green felt in my bedroom for a makeshift green screen. And then I just taught myself VFX. And through learning VFX and learning how to edit, I just got gigs, like helping out Old English. Remember Old English? Yeah. Wait, yeah. you do VFX too? Yeah. Not good. No, I, I know the bare minimum. But uh, okay. I worked with Old English editing their videos, which led me to College Humor, which led me to directing. And so what was your first paid directing gig? So it was for Super Deluxe. It was in the very beginning stages of Super Deluxe where they were just handing out money to comedians who were in this scene started in this bar called Rafifi back in New York City. It was like sort of the center of underground comedy in New York during the time I was there. And they gave this comedian, Bobby Tisdale, who's the host of like the most popular show in that venue, a bunch of money to make a series called Bobby's Beautiful Bed and Breakfast. And he needed a director slash editor who he could pay no money to. And I was like, I'll do it. Because he knew me from, because I would hang out at the comedy club a bunch and I would film bits for a lot of the comedians. I sort of, that's how I got into that scene. Whenever a comedian had an idea, I'd be like, yeah, I'll shoot it for you. No problem. And then that gig actually got me fired from my advertising agency job (laughs) because I would, we could shoot on a Saturday and a Sunday and a Monday. That's the only time we could get the location and the camera. So I'm like, all right, Saturday, Sunday, no problem. Monday, I'm going to call in sick. So I think my bosses found out that I was playing hooky because right in the middle of a take, I get a phone call from work saying, or and we're going to let you go right now. So I, but I said I was sick. And I think what gave it away was I emailed him them that I was sick the morning before, like the, <laughs> the evening before, sorry. Right. So the night before, I'm like, hey, I'm not feeling well, so yeah, I'm not going to yeah. come in tomorrow, which is the first. That's all utter bullshit. No is one, that really? No, I never thought about that. I was a spry young New Yorker. And so he called me up. He's like, I don't think you're invested in this company. So I'm going to, I think you're, we're going to have to let you go. And I had to feign being sick. I'm like, uh, is, it, 
is this the right time, man? I'm just, I'm in bed right now. And then click, hang up. All right, next take, let's do this. And so I just jumped straight back into shooting. And were you upset? Nah. It was my first job in New York. It was really great. It taught me how to edit. They they would shoot terrible footage of musicians that they would want to cut into like minute trailers for each of these bands for a social media for bands website called Haystack, which quickly failed or never even got off the ground. So I cut... 800 hours of band footage into trailers for each of the bands. So it got me really good at editing. Yeah. So it's just called like Haystack. So basically their motto is like, it's literally going to be impossible to find your band. Exactly. On our website. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's going to be a real pain in the ass to find the needle. So yeah, that was my first gig and I just kept going. I got, I got laid off the next day. They actually gave me a severance package and it, it sort of funded my first bout of uh, freelance in New York city where I was very poor but was able to sustain myself just through editing videos for comedy people. And why were you in New York? I just picked it. Because you're from the Bay Area. I'm from the Bay Area. I went to school in Santa Barbara. I studied psychology. Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I'm not going to use that degree. So I took some screenwriting classes, got really into writing, and then I had to pick. I went to New York once before, and I really liked it. But then right after college, I went down to L.A. I talked to the one friend I had there. I'm like, do you know of any jobs? And he's like, nope. I'm like, all right, New York it is. Cool. <laughs> and I was stuck in traffic. I remember I was in traffic on the 405, heading to the 101. And I would talk to my friend who lives in Boston. And I'm like, what are you going to do after college? And he's like, I think I, it's between Boston and New York. And I was like, if you do New York, I'm coming with you. And he's like, all right, let's do New York. And then we just crashed in a studio, both of us in one bed for the first couple of weeks and just figured our shit out. And it was really fun. Yeah, New York is like the dream. It's, it's a true dream, and I find that there's a lot more work happening out there. There's a lot of great shows happening out there. And so I'm, I'm, I'm in, like, just before this podcast, I put out an email, like, where I'm trying to finagle, like, a cheap room in both coasts because I just really can't quit it. I can't quit that city. It's just too fun. And there's enough people out there not doing entertainment to make it really a break while you can also keep mm-hmm. working. Right. And I don't know, sometimes in LA, it's a little hard to like get inspired because all you're doing is like talking about your work. Yeah. Right? I, and your work is supposed to be about the world, you know? Yeah. My buddy who came to visit is a scientist. And then I was talking Weird. at dinner. I know. Just figuring out DNA. I was talking to some people at dinner about multicam versus single cam. And he's like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? Is that how many cameras there are? I'm like, well, it's more of a tone thing. He's like, can we talk about anything else? And I'm like, oh, yeah, there's there's things outside of this. So I, I need I find myself needing to go to New York, which is its own little bubble, but out of a entertainment centric town to get a lot of good thinking and writing done. And then I come back and treat L.A. like a writer's retreat where I just like sit in my house, mm-hmm. crank out a screenplay or a pilot, and then back to New York to have fun and to give me something to write about. What percentage of the stuff you direct do you also write? A vast majority. I've directed a couple things, you know, a couple like pilot presentations and stuff that were I wasn't involved in the writing, but because I come from a writing background that I feel probably to my own demise at some points, push a little bit of my own comedic voice onto what we're shooting mm-hmm. because they're in very nascent stages. Like for these pilot presentations, I come with a little bit of a, well, as a writer, I think maybe we can tweak these to So when I direct it, the joke that you're going for will land. I kind of wonder though, if maybe that's the reason you're getting hired, you know, mm-hmm. I feel like that 
oftentimes when people are hiring a writer director just to do quote unquote direct, they're really asking for like another pass yeah. as well, you know? So I think that's invited. That's invited. But I've also learned that that's a good way to make enemies of writers. Sure. You know, yeah. like you really, I think now that I've been on a bunch of TV sets, a director's job is just to be a supreme optimist about the script and just do the very best version possible. Mm-hmm. Do the, and that's where your talent comes in is making something sing, mm-hmm. you know, make a script that maybe has a couple weak points sing and find creative ways to make those, you know, maybe slightly off moments do really well or find a way to get past them a little quicker and mm-hmm. really find the moments that really will make a script amazing. Uh, rather than trying to do a rewrite on it. Right, right. And then there's always the ability to change it when you're shooting it. You're like, oh, that isn't really working. Let's talk and figure out another alt version. It's sort of like making the writers look good is kind of another version. Yeah, and the writers are good. I mean, hopefully, you know, the writers put a lot of time and effort thinking about it. And as a director, you're coming in as an outside perspective, which can be good for coming up with new jokes or just having a new take at it. Sure. But you also, I've learned need to come in with a very soft touch mm-hmm. and make sure that everyone's respected. You know, I come from a place where I would always write, produce, direct, and edit everything I did. And then when you get into larger projects and things get a lot more collaborative, it becomes about having a nice soft touch mm-hmm. in everything you do and on being hyper positive about everything you do and being like, this will be great, you know, instead yeah. of coming in with a with critique. Have you guys ever gotten scripts that if you just want to do a good job of them, there's no way to do it with the resources you have. Like a script is written to be much more expensive or take a mm-hmm. lot more time. Mm-hmm. Like that you don't feel like you can do a good job on that script because of the resources you have. Yeah. Does that happen ever? Yeah. A friend of mine very recently sent me a sketch that she wanted me to direct that was a parody of The Bachelor that took place in Peru and involved a ton of montages. And I told her, I'm like, how much... I know you have a little bit of money behind this, but I don't think you want me to do this because the way I, I envision it, it's not going to come out right. Like you need to spend a lot of money to do, to do a bachelor parody because right. if it doesn't look right, it's not going to feel right. And it's not going to be funny. So oftentimes that, but I feel when you have limited resources, you can oftentimes scale back or come up with really creative ways to make a high concept idea like work. I did this one video that was um, for super deluxe, and it never got released because they shut down before it got released. But it involved going into someone's dreamland, right? Mm-hmm. Going some inside someone's head. And I didn't have the money to do like full v- VFX rendered worlds. And I didn't have money to build a set. So we just built miniature cardboard sets mm-hmm. and then shot everything green screen and sort of I used my rudimentary After Effects to just like build worlds, sort of, sort of borrowing ideas that Rob Schrab has sort of did with his uh, drawless animation style. Check it out, Rob right. Schrab, drawless animation. Yeah, I mean, I feel like there's a lot of times when you're in that situation where, I, basically I'm in this situation right now. <laughs> we have this <laughs> six-page script, right, for this thing I'm supposed to direct next week, which I had like a panic attack before mm-hmm. you guys showed up because I realized I scheduled the shoot date on Yom Kippur, which is like, <laughs> The only Jewish holiday I observe in the entire year where I fast. And I've tried working on it before and I've yeah. every time passed out and thrown up. Oh, so, cool, And it's my first job. It's for Funnier Die. It's my first directing job for them. And so I didn't want to be the guy that's like, hey, I'm Jewish. And like, <laughs> so any way we can not do it on Tuesday or Wednesday, the only two days that the client said they can do it on. But uh, I do feel like. 
on a holiday you're allowed to be like hey guys it's literally the one holiday like if it was rosh hashanah the i don't know if you guys could tell but i'm jewish (laughs) (laughs) yeah guys i have a secret um (laughs) but the script also was that i got and then they they asked me to rewrite it but without removing anything just to make it more shootable but it was Mm -hmm. six pages it took place there was like a bunch of montages there was like five locations and they wanted to shoot it all in one day. And there's going to be four clients on set, like watching every single shot. Yeah. And so I'm just like in the situation. So the first thing I'm directing for them, and I'm trying to be, like you right. said, the super <laughs> optimist. Like, this is going to be awesome. I love this idea. It's super funny. It's super great. It's going to be really cool. But I know that it's not going to be. Because <laughs> we're going to have one take for each thing. Nothing's going to look perfect. Nothing's going to be lit great. Right. You know, because we have to run through. We're shooting so much stuff. And then... I'm cutting things down. And every time I add something cool, actually Matt Enloe had suggested this like flash grenade scene, a, which a everyone really loves. great joke. Oh, good. Yeah. Like, oh, I was cracking up when I read that, but it's like, it's probably going to get cut. Cause it's going to take more than 10 minutes to shoot. You know, do the producers know you're in that predicament in oh, terms yeah. of, I, so the first, the line producer was like, well, if we do like a really, it was supposed to be kind of, I was, I was envisioning it as like this documentary style shoot. It's a comedy, but like, not exactly like The Office, but like, I don't know, playing it kind of dry and mm-hmm. real. It's about this guy that is really into Call of Duty and his his Call of Duty team is getting ready for the next Call of Duty game. So they're all moved in together and they're doing everything together in real life, you know, like okay. like as a team, like brushing their teeth together, reading a book together, right. sending an email together. And now they're going to go on a job interview together as a team. But like militaristic. and Yeah, yeah it's yeah, like they're all on yeah, headsets yeah. and like. We got yeah. a water coming on our sex game. Yeah, like, you know, hoorah. Sex. Yeah, yeah. 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 Get that toothpaste on, dish down, dish down. Like, Doing you know, those, whatever. those SWAT team style hand motions. Right. So kind of shooting it like you would shoot like a, what's that movie that shot by the, pull. who's that DP that Christian Bale yelled at? Anyway, he made this movie where he took real soldiers and they wrote a script basically and they acted it out. It's called We Were Soldiers. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I wanted to shoot it really cool like that with B-roll and montages and voiceover and just kind of build this like world out. And I was like, we can do it like with a tiny crew. Like we'll just have like an, one HMI and like a couple keynotes and like a DP, like a doc DP mm-hmm. and a sound person and the actors and just a couple locations and we'll run around. But I need two days and I, like I need nothing, like a six person crew. And the line producer was like, yeah, well, if it's that small, for sure we can do it. And everything's been going around that. And yesterday, you know, it's like the head of some department is like, yeah, I was thinking about it. Let's just shoot it in one day. Uh, and I'm like, okay, but... We can't like, yeah, or we need you to be positive corners. here. Yeah. But it's, but, uh, yeah. The trade-off is like, Hey man, I like cut every other corner so that I yeah, can get two yeah. days. Like that's the horse trade. That they actually made. said this, which is crazy. I'm a hundred percent sure they don't listen to this podcast. It doesn't, doesn't matter. But they said, you know, if we shot for two days, it would be so expensive. They would really have to blow us away the video. And just like you're already trying to cut all these things that we don't think it's going to blow us away. So let's just shoot. One. <laughs> yeah. You, uh, we're setting you up for failure. So we're afraid you're going to fail. <laughs> yeah. And it's my first job with this company. Yeah. yeah. So I want to be like, I don't know. I think you kind of nailed it when you said like, you just have to be a super optimist yeah. about the script. And they're like, we let you rewrite. And I'm like, yeah, but the client said these are all the scenes they love. And so I'm not going to cut any of those, but they're right. like a montage of, there's this montage where we're in four different apartments of people playing Call of Duty with each other. Mm-hmm. Well, that's on you, bro. Which, yeah, we can, no, <laughs> <laughs> but they wrote it and that's the client's like, we love that. Let's keep that. And let's like change everything. Yeah. Else. I think if everyone is aware of the challenges that they are putting you in with time and budget and everything, you can still be that optimist and be like, all right, 
this is what I'm handed and I'm going to give you the best version of what I'm handed under the circumstances. You can still be that team player optimist because at the end of the day, they just want someone who won't lose their cool and it will finish the video. It may not be your perfect, beautiful, you know, auteur version of it, but you know. Well, so I've kind of eliminated that whole doc style with the yeah. B-roll and the voiceover. And I was like, it's pretty much just going to be like every other sketch you've ever seen, like a guy talking to the camera and then like a few funny shots and then just talking to the camera again. And then we're in an office because we don't have any time to shoot them driving. I had like kind of, I don't know, as an editor, I'm sure you guys can relate, like those transitional moments that like Huge. so many directors yeah. that are kind of newer directors don't think of, they like really make like something feel good. You know, when you watch something, you're like, wow, kind of felt good. Yeah. It's because there's like a flow to the piece. Yeah. That like a lot of comedy writers that aren't involved in production don't really know right. about. It's the difference between just being joke oriented and being a little more stylistic, I guess. Yeah. Or yeah. just yeah. thinking that, I don't know, sometimes I'll fight so hard for jokes or for something to make sense. Mm-hmm. And I'll see in the final product that, yeah, that joke's kind of funnier. That joke's not that funnier. It doesn't really make sense, but it flows. Like you're you're invested in watching it, and there's something about like transitional shots that that can get you in there, especially yeah. if you're using music and stuff. So I, th- I don't I, know. I think when it comes to low budget stuff, it's so important to work within your means, but kill it rather than, than try to overextend. Mm-hmm. Like I remember when I was I had to pitch a web series, but they're like, we have five thousand dollars for six episodes. I'm like. All right, it's going to be two people, one location for all six. And they're like, right. great. And it having those constraints gave you the time and flexibility to make those two-person scenes in one mm-hmm. location amazing and really fun and cover it and get cool moments and get alt, alternate versions of things so you can really build something cool rather than trying to make an action montage for right. no, no money and no time. Like Those things take so much time. What was the web series? That was The Morning After I did with Above Average. With That's Thomas like Middleditch. Cecily Strong. Yeah, yes. Cecily yes, and yes, yes. Megan Nuringer and Jamie Lee and Alana Glazer was in it. Wait, so you did all of that series for $5,000? Yeah. Well done, man. Thanks, man. So yeah. Do you pay the, the cat, they just get you the cast above average? They got me Cecily, and then the rest came from me. Like, I cast. It was, it was great, though, because I'm like, I got Thomas Middleditch in it before he got Silicon, and I got Alana Glazer before she got Broad City, and there's just all these people that now have gone on to do really amazing things. But it was nice to limit it, and it became a really great, especially for digital, I feel, mm-hmm. if anyone is making a web series, keep it simple and keep it a relatable situation that is infused with conflict from the get-go. So you don't even have to build a conflict. You don't have to spend 30 seconds setting up a conflict when you're like, right. oh, it's a guy and girl waking up in bed, and they clearly didn't know each other yesterday. There's your conflict. Play in that world for an episode and then do it again with a different person. You know, it's so funny. If someone had said, hey, here's $5,000 to make this show, I would be like, oh, this is impossible. And that show looks great. Thanks. Was it everything you thought it would be? Like us? Yeah, it's great. No. How was it for your first time? The first time for me. Yeah, it was so great. It's the first time I've taken a guy's virginity. Well, I wouldn't have had it taken by anyone else but you. Wow, we just met last night. I know, I know. I remember being in the bar and seeing you and saying, that's the girl I want to take it from me for the first time, which was now, just then, last night. Well, okay, thank you. Yeah, great work. Didn't even hurt. It only hurts girls the first time. (laughs) I'm just so new, yeah. Uh, Well, thank you for making it so comfortable and magical. My pleasure, Dave. Thanks. 
babe. <laughs> I mean, you call on your favors. Sure. I had a buddy with a red who did it for very cheap. What and, what what did lighting look like for that? Right, because it's very natural, naturalistic. Super naturalistic. Yeah, yeah. We were just in an apartment that we had very little lighting. Vincent Payone shot it, who is now directing in the duo Joss and Vince, and we just kept it supernatural and the beauty of shooting things. I think we shot, we shot it 4k and just having that color space to play in, but we kept it pretty raw and flat and milky yeah. throughout. And it, it turned out really good. And then we had to, then we shot the next season on C 300s and it looks totally different and not mm-hmm. that great comparatively. It was like much more contrasty and right, light and punchy and didn't feel like morning, you know, and the whole mm-hmm. idea was it's supposed to, everything's supposed to take place in the morning. I mean, I find Again, it's like I was actually thought that this might be an interesting topic for Oren Brimmer since we've been searching for the topic, which is like that we, you know, all used to make a ton of stuff all the time. And it's yeah. like $5,000. Cool. This is what I can do for five yeah. grand. Let's do it. And shooting and editing and directing and doing all that stuff at once. But now it's like, like, do you get to a place where you're like, I just don't want to make something for nothing? I guess that that's, I think, the, the interesting topic. But before that, what I was going to say is I find that having really small crews lets you go really fast, you know? Yeah. Because did you have a makeup artist on the first time you guys shot that? Yeah, we had we had a makeup artist, but do, you know, everybody. And, you know, I think you can build in a lot, a lot of cool things to make your production life a lot easier. Like Wet Hot American Summer did it in that their entire series takes place over the course of one day. So everyone's wearing the same wardrobe in every episode. Right. In the morning after, every woman wore this exact same shirt that they found in his closet and threw on as like a pajama shirt. So And he was shirtless, so there was no wardrobe changing. There was mm-hmm. no like, throw on this shirt, get in bed, let's do it again. And it's all right. bedhead and stuff. Anyway, yeah, and so bedhead yeah, and just yeah. like, we just made sure people were camera ready, but not like, it wasn't beauty makeup. Right? And also when you have like a five person crew and two lights, it's so much easier to turn around than if you have 30 people and 20 lights. And know? it's it becomes more of a fun thing for the actors mm-hmm. too, because it's just you and a couple other people in a room hanging out and making each other laugh. The biggest litmus test is, can you make the camera people laugh? If they can laugh, if they're laughing, you, you know, you have like a joke that's going to resonate with a bunch of people. So I have a theory, the opposite theory. <laughs> really? I think just because everyone is like cracking up on set does not necessarily mean that it belongs in the edit. I think the the key distinction there is camera people, right? Because yeah. or just anyone who's got kind of like a job where they're reasonably grumpy. If you woke up at like four or five in the morning and like carry heavy things all the time and then also have a super technical job yeah. and you've seen this a bunch of times and then you laugh, that's pretty hard. Exactly. It's like, like you know, yeah. your your guess- comedy writer friend who came to like help punch up if he's laughing, like that's not necessarily the same thing. Right. You know? But I, I guess that you're working with Thomas Middleditch and Cecily Strong. They're pretty smart, talented. They understand that like the comedy comes from character. But I've I've edited so many things that have been directed by other people that they're really trying to push these like f- moments from set that everyone was laughing. Oh, people are cracking up when she said this. Oh, yeah. But it has like yeah. nothing to do with her character. It's just oh. because people, it was unexpected. So people were laughing right. on set. It's breaking the monotony. Um, yeah. 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 I think no matter you have to pretend you weren't on set. You have to just look at the footage plain and be like, what makes the best thing? And then kill all your darlings to make it, especially on the web, as fast and punchy as possible if you're doing like, you know, short digital series and stuff like that. Should we talk about the time to make stuff? Like making the cheap yeah, stuff? Yeah, yeah. because uh, just for a little bit of context, we're, I know we're jumping around. This above average series was 
fairly recent. Like you'd done a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Like, well, that was like five right. years ago, wasn't it? It was right before we did the Pete Holmes show. So that was in 2012. But you, but yeah. So that's perfect. You've been working professionally. You were working for the, you'd worked for the Daily Show. Mm-hmm. Then you'd gone freelance. Wait, what'd you do for the Daily Show? I was a field producer. Oh, cool. Yeah. How'd you get that job? So I'd, I'd been working at College Humor as an editor. And through that, they came to know my work with comedians Pete Holmes and Matt McCarthy. We were a group called Front Page Films. And we pitched them a bunch of ideas, and they really liked this Batman idea that we pitched them, which be- later became probably our most successful web series we've done, where Pete Holmes plays an idiot Batman. And through those videos, <laughs> through Batman videos, they got past two people at The Daily Show, and they're like, let's call that Batman guy in here. And I knew a bunch of people who worked at The Daily Show just through going to comedy like four nights a week. And so when I got called in, they're like, we really love your Batman stuff and a lot of the Pete Holmes videos that I had done. So they hired me and then you do a trial piece. And I got handed such a softball, amazing trial piece uh, where I had to interview a guy who was really struggling because he was unemployed. And then we discover that he has a 13 and a half inch dick. (laughs) And then the whole piece becomes, why are you not doing porn? Wait, and so... Is this a real story? That's a real story. So we follow this. It's, his name's Jonah Falcon. And, and that was a joke too. Your name is, your last name is Falcon and you have a 13 and a half inch dick. Please do porn. And how do you find this out? Just by looking at him? Uh, how do we reveal it? You know, in classic daily show style, we come at it as an economy story. And then he reveals it. You know, I, I have unique, you know, why can't you get a job? What's special about you? It was with Sam B. And he's like, you know, I, uh, you know, I'm I'm a good blogger. I'm, um, you know, I can I can play piano. I uh, I have a 13 and a half inch dick. <laughs> and then there's that moment, that wait what moment, and then uh, the rest of the piece turns into this crazy thing. But in in terms wait, is of he an actor, he was aspiring to be an actor, and so we take him to a casting audition. We make him wear bike shorts. It's wait, so does and he, but he really has this penis. Oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> One of the descriptions he uses in the pieces. He can fit his foreskin around a doorknob. <laughs> so he's not Jewish. Nah, nah. Jonah Falcon's not Jewish. Yeah. And apparently he gets lightheaded when he gets an erection. Is it's, he very tall? Nah. Poor, like, you should watch it. It's like, he's like a portly man who just has a giant schlong. <laughs> Everyone is special, Jonah. What makes you special? Well, I have a gaming blog that's really high on Google searches. It's for video games and tech industry. Uh-huh. Um, I also enjoy acting. Um, it's just, it's, it's not any, any desire for fame or anything like that. It's just something I like doing. And? Um, well, it, the, the obvious thing is the fact that I'm super endowed. Wait, what? I have a 13 half inch penis. Oh, oh, wow. Without using a ruler, I'm, uh, longer than my forearm and thicker than my wrist, um, I could uh, envelop the enti- an entire doorknob with my foreskin. Finally, I had something I could work with. Most men know that to cross a football field, you would need 655 average penises, but you would only need 267 Jonah penises and less than 1,000 to get to the top of the Empire State Building, which got me thinking... So that was my first piece. That was my yeah. trial piece. You do one piece, and based on that, whether John likes that or not, then so you So, Lauren, get, oh, how'd the interview go? Yeah, what was great. the first day of work like? Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, well, I... Yeah, I saw a guy in bike shorts that he was busting out of, 
And, uh, you know, in terms of daily show pieces, that's softball. That's just yeah, a fun, yeah. old school, let's just have fun with a crazy character as opposed to like a hard hitting, let's make a political point piece. So, yeah, I got the job just through the Batman videos and just, you know, I, I think to do a daily, to be a field producer at The Daily Show, you have to have a background in journalism, writing and directing and producing. So if you can get like three of those four. And are I you think editing also? You're a big part of the edit process. It's It's a start to finish process when you're a field producer you basically pitch the piece write it up see it through come up with jokes pitch it to john he approves it then you go then he's like all right send sends you out into the field you have to improvise on the fly sometimes things don't go perfectly and the piece becomes about something else and then you bring it back you watch all the footage you take notes you get transcripts of all the footage god bless those interns who have to like transcribe every word that we, we record out there and we we create these pieces and then you show it to John again and you're like, hope he likes it. There's that moment where he's yeah. watching and just nodding and just being like, all right, I think we got something here. And you're like, oh, thank fucking God. <laughs> wow, that's cool. Yeah, so that was that was amazing. That was my dream gig. Like part of me, I moved to New York to be part of the Daily Show. Then I sort of like, eh, I like sketch comedy. It's more mm-hmm. fun. And then it just like happened. And it was the best like two and a half years of my life. But then Pete, who helped me get the job, Mm-hmm. He's like, hey, I'm doing a late night show. You want to help run it? I'm like, all right, you help right, me get that. How the- did he get that show? He just pitched it? The Pete Holmes show, he had done Conan several times, and we were the show after Conan. Right, right. And uh, I, don't, I wasn't part of the pitch process, but he, you know, he'd already got, he got the pilot. And he's like, hey, do you want to you help me out with this? I'm like, yeah. You know, working, you know, the chemistry Pete and I have on set will beat any dream job because working with a good friend and a collaborator and being able to make something that makes both of you laugh so much. Because Pete and I have the exact same comedic sensibility, but two completely different skill sets. Mm-hmm. So being able to work with him on that show was just like the best thing. And we got to make our own show. Granted, not very watched, but we got to make two 80, seasons, though. Right? Two seasons, 80 yeah. episodes. Hey, man. 80 episodes, oh. five minutes of new stand-up per episode, a new sketch per episode, like a crazy amount of work. It was 22 minutes? Yeah, it was. I mean, with commercials and stuff, 20 minutes, but, you know, four nights a week. So wow. wait, so twenty minutes. So there's five minutes of stand up in every episode. His monologue was evergreen. We would every monologue that was written. We had to basically shoot nine episodes a week during our production weeks. So we would shoot them so far in advance that we weren't allowed mm-hmm. to hit upon anything topical, short of like Thanksgiving's coming up. Right. You right. know. Wow. So we just would crank. I mean, just writing that much material, and that I wasn't as involved in the monologues. I would just give sort of like a my two cents when they were already completed and our writers cranked out really good stuff day after day. And it was, it was a grind, but in hindsight, I'm super happy with, with everything we did there. And so you had all your kind of new found daily show type skills yeah, the, to bring to Pete, the Pete Holmes show. Yeah. And I sort of imparted that into our field pieces, you know, where we, Pete would go out and interview people. It was less, Pete was far more into just, having fun and meeting a person and sort of treating it like a podcast versus like trying to make a point. But a lot of the process stuff that I learned from the daily show mm-hmm. made its way into our show. And I, I got to say this about the daily show. It's a great show. It's amazing. Everyone involved with it. So smart, but the machine that John and his staff built that I could have just been a cog that you put in and then take out and get replaced the machine they built to create a show four days a week was so impressive. Mm-hmm. Everyone had a good schedule. Everyone was happy. Everyone was doing good work. 
and then going from that show to our own strip show, our own four day a week show where we didn't have that, those machinations in place was night and day. And you realize a lot of make creating a show isn't, isn't making the material that creates the show. It's creating an environment where Mm -hmm. your staff will make an amazing show every night, you know, and that's what you need to concentrate on rather than what we focused on, which was just crank out the material as quickly as possible. Like, slapdash let's fucking you know i'm thinking what's that term slash and slash and burn yeah yeah so that was a big learning experience in that we just try to crank out as much material machine be damned but that burned us out uh by the time we hit episode 80 so if i was to do it again we would spend a little bit more time cultivating the environment that creating a show four nights a week would be easy and fun for everybody involved rather than a crazy stressful pressure cooker I'm just curious about like the machine. Do you have like three monologue writers, three sketch writers, three like it was editors that do each thing separately? Let's see. How do we do it? We had somewhere between six and eight writers. I can't, I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, but we would split them up into sketch and monologue. But then sometimes we'd be done with sketches for a while and fold them back together. It was a lot of trial and error. There was basically like three or four main monologue writers, but it was so Pete's voice Mm-hmm. that he would basically do it all himself and then use the monologue, you know, at least initially. Later on, he got way better at letting other people write him. But um, it was sort of slapdash. We didn't really have a process. And because we didn't have the time or money to really plan it, mm-hmm. and granted, we didn't focus on that initially because it was our first time running a show, it sort of got a little unruly by the end mm-hmm. and people started being getting a little unhappy. I think everyone who worked on it thinks fondly upon it now but at by the episode 80 there's a lot of people who are like this is unsustainable this is crazy do you think any of that comes from that sort of uh, school of like internet diy sort of like we can do it ourselves sort of mentality you know yeah like because we're also good at just making it happen and because oftentimes that's a short-term sort of plan you don't have to put in all of those mechanisms that you're describing you know so like learning to think about it in those terms is probably unfamiliar yeah absolutely and everything up until that point in my career was you do it you see it through from start to finish and then when you're creating that there's there's no green screen in your apartment anymore exactly you have a bunch of people who need to feel inspired and happy and create a show that they feel happy with which is part of the job now so I wasn't I was great at being a guy who could crank out 80 sketches in a year, but I was not good at being a boss. Mm-hmm. And that's I think the big thing when you're creating your own show and when it's taking the time to set up the systems that you and similar to what we were talking about of being an optimistic director, you have to be an optimistic boss when you're running a show that just like hears everyone's thoughts, having a tone and a vision for what you think the show should be, but making sure everyone understands what their role is in the show, getting rid of anything that's nebulous and making sure everyone's heard and everyone has a say or just saying up top, you don't have a say, I get final say and that's the job and walk into the situation knowing that. Yeah, right. But eventually that's going to cause a lot of turnover. So it's always better just like hear everybody out. And Pete and I, I think, weren't very good at that initially in in the late night show because we knew each other's sense of humor so well that we're like, we'll just do it. Mm-hmm. But then we both got so burnt out, and then our writers didn't feel as fulfilled as they could have been. Right. right. Yeah. Well, it's tricky, right? Because you guys are this little family, right? Mm-hmm. And it's Pete's face, right? Yeah. And it's his voice, and it's his name on the show. 
So of course you're going to be protective of that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So fascinating. So, well, so maybe let's fast forward a little bit, mm -hmm. right? Because you guys are doing another show together yeah. now. So after the late night show, we went our separate ways to do our own thing. We pitched a show together, but that sort of got sidetracked because Pete collaborated with Judd Apatow and sold a pilot to HBO for the show I'm working on currently called Crashing. And it's, it's inspired by Pete's life. So we, Pete and I were pitching together, but that got sidetracked because he had been working with Judd Apatow on a pilot idea and it got sold to HBO. And that became the show called Crashing, which I'm working on today. Yeah. Are you directing any episodes? Or you no, I was, a, I was a producer and then I was also in the writer's room. So, And I'm, we're currently we're in post-production, so we're in there every day slogging through the edits and putting the show together. And who directed the pilot? The pilot was Judd. The finale was Judd. We had Ryan McFall, the Emmy, now Emmy Award-winning director of Schumer. Chris Kelly, the now head writer of SNL, uh, who directed other people. And then Jeff Schaefer, who created The League. Okay. So we had a really amazing... All-stars, yeah. Yeah, and it's just each of them had their very different style and perspective, and it was a hyper-educational experience seeing you know, the writer-type director, the emotional core-style director, and like the editor-style director all attack a show, emulating the pilot, but adding their own little flares to it. Interesting. What were the differences between the three types? I mean, they were all amazing, but one, you know, Jeff comes from a writing background and he's very, you know, he was very intent on just coming up with a really great punch up and jokes throughout. And it was really amazing to see that happen in real time. And he's such a funny guy. Then Chris was so amazing at just like locking down the tone and the emotion. Mm. Like he was really good at making sure we got the tone right. And like the emotional crux of every scene was explored. And then Ryan was amazing at just like, this, the camera and the cinematography and the edit, like he was thinking of the edit in his head and he, instead of hosing it down, he knew, oh, this shot's going to be perfect for this moment. And, you know, that comes, because he came from a VFX and editing background too, so I could relate to that style. You know, did you feel like the cast was responding more to one of them than the other? No, no. Who is the cast? The cast, I mean, it's basically Pete and then a bunch of guest stars. It, it's kind of like the Louis sort of this modern, yeah. you know, Louis, but with a little bit more of an overarching story. Like there's a, there's definitely a story that happens throughout eight episodes rather than Louis, which is true episodic. And right. granted later seasons of Louis did get more episodic, but at least initial Louis, but you know, I was sitting next to the director for the whole time. So I saw the little detail differences. Like what I described in terms of their styles were 5% uh, of their style and everything else was, they're all just super competent, highly talented people. And is, does Judd improvise a lot? Oh, yeah. It's all like, we'll get the script version and then we'll get the, hey, what if I hate this in the edit? I mean, that's one piece of advice that Judd has imparted to us that is so valuable, which would be great for any director. If you have the time, if you're literally only have 10 minutes for a shot and then you have to move on, like the thing you're about to do, you don't have time for this. But pretend you hate this scene in the edit as written. Pretend you hate it. What's the version that you won't hate mm -hmm. if you need to swap it or yeah. if you need a slightly different angle? He's angry in the scene. What if he was like a little bit hysterical or what if he was saying it happily? Let's just try because mm -hmm. you're there. The cameras are there. The actors are there. Their lights are set up. It's not that hard just to get a take where you try something different. But then when you do the other angle, don't you have to worry about, like, it's like this chaos entropy, right? Right. It's like, okay, well, oh, well, the happy version was pretty fun too. So now let's flip around. Let's do the mad well, version and the happy version. And uh, let's add one more version. Well, like, we would oftentimes, because of that style, 
uh, we would often shoot three camera cross shooting, you know, and which changes lighting and stuff like that naturally. But to get those natural organic improvised moments, because we, there was so much improv on set, it's worth it. It's a necessary evil to shoot three camera just to get all those really amazing organic moments between characters. Before we started rolling, you mentioned that you guys were shooting film. Yes. So the uh, whole show, whole show, film, three cameras, film, film, three oh, camera, three cameras. So all the directors had improvising going on or just judge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Judd had the flexibility to change the script because he, he's at the final say in our show. So he gets to say like, you know, this scene isn't working for me. So let's, let's try a different version. The other directors definitely were closer to script, but then all the writers, like we had four writers on set every day. And our directive was, let's pretend you hate this in the edit. What's another version? Give Pete uh, an emotional direction to go in this mm-hmm. scene that's slightly different than the last time. Because what if we need like a melancholy take and he's instead of a happy take? Wait, so you had writers on set that were doing this on the fly for you? Well, not for me. I was one of those writers on set. Oh, okay. You know, that's what my role on set was just to be a straight up writer and producer, just to sit, make sure that we keeping the whole series in mind because mm-hmm. we had directors doing two episodes at a time and we were shooting out of order. You know, we shot episodes four and five and then we shot two and three and then we shot eight and then we shot six and seven. So like, so you guys are tracking the big picture in a way right. that a director is just worried about their episode. Yeah. And you know, the yeah. director has read everything up until that point, but there are changes we're making. Right. You right. know, and we're like, oh, wait. So we sh- change that scene because we improvise that and we think that's the right way to go there. So that's going to affect that. But we've already shot that episode. So we, there's a lot of keeping track that we're, so that was a whole system that we had in place on set of just like copious note taking, almost like shorthand transcribing mm-hmm. of every take as we were going, just to make sure that we were keeping track of everything that's been said differently than the script. And are you working with a script supervisor as well? Like, are they, it seems like they could be a comrade in this sort of situation. Yeah. Well, we had the the main script supervisor who was doing the script supervising in the more typical sense, like Mm -hmm. sitting by the director, making sure continuity is great, making sure that the shots all will make sense in the edit. And then we had sort of our script team, like all the writers on set, plus our writer's assistant, plus Mm -hmm. our script coordinator had this whole system where one person was recording all the dialogue one person was transcribing on the fly. They would double check to make sure that they got everything. That was passed off to post. And then we'd have full transcriptions of all the improv. Oh, that's incredible. It's an incredible luxury, but it's so useful when yeah. in the edit when you're like, oh my God, remember that joke? Where was that? Mm-hmm. Boom. And it saves you a lot of time and sifting. When you, when you have a big team, you know, we have different editors, we have different writers, different producers in different edits. When you're doing everything by yourself, you don't need all these extra flourishes, right. but it's getting everyone on the same page and transcribing. And that's a big lesson from Judd too. Record everything. Mm-hmm. Record everything and keep track of everything. Record every rehearsal. Keeping track of those lines that you come up with in rehearsal that are different than the script, but hey, look, we're here. Let's try it. Wow, that's wild. So, sorry. I'm just <laughs> it's a lot. Like, it's I'm a lot. Just trying to grok- I'm just like, it, it's so incredible because like, I think from where Oren and I are sitting, like I do a, a lot of improv, but it's that sort of uh, self-contained sort of thing that you were mm-hmm. describing before where it's like, it's really going to come down to me and whether or not a, I remember or I've talked to a, a, a script supervisor about like what I liked. And it's mostly just me and the cast kind of throwing out ideas or notes or whatever. And it's mostly alts, mm-hmm. right? So it's, it's always relatively easy to manage. Whereas this seems like it's a much more global sort of, 
take on how to rethink a script? Like how quickly are you guys shooting? Like what, what's the page count you guys are looking at? Because of that, we aren't shooting that much per day. I think we average six and a half. Okay, so that's still a, it's still a, a decent fair amount. Clip. Yeah, but the three cameras helps, mm-hmm. you know, and that's why just condensing the amount of setups mm-hmm. gives you more time to play. And then in terms of like, because we mentioned that you guys are shooting film, you know, your mags are rolling out. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of like a kind of built-in timer or? Yeah, I mean, you aren't doing takes any longer than 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it is a built-in timer. And also there were times where we didn't want to waste film, but there are other times where like, well, we know we have 10 minutes to roll this scene out. Mm-hmm. What if we just let it keep going for 30 seconds? What would happen right. if like the script ended, but we kept watching what this scene happened and we found some really amazing moments like by shooting the 30 seconds prior and then 30 seconds after the scene. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's a game of not wanting to call cut right? just to see where they're going to go. Oh, big tip for directors in your head. When you want to say cut, wait five seconds before you call cut because there's, especially with when working with comedians, because they'll come up with some riff and you'll say cut right in the middle of this amazing riff and you'll be like, ah, we can't recreate that. Yeah, they, so, they can't help it, right? Yeah. Like they, they're going to be funny because like something in them makes them compulsively be funny, yeah. right? I always call cut on like where I'll really want to put the edit, which mm-hmm. is the biggest mistake. Yeah. It's so stupid. Yeah. yeah. I get, I feel like actors are like, uh, is he going to call cut or what? Like I, <laughs> I hate calling cut, but sometimes people will be on a riff and you can tell that they know it's good and that it's great and they're like so charged that they'll just keep going yeah. and you have no good cut point, you know? Mm. And I'm like, just give me something I can come out on. Like I can <laughs> end that sentence on, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I had one more quick question about the, the improv actually. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, you guys are exploring all of the different options and things like that. How do you know when enough is enough? How do you know when you've kind of reached that point where you've explored You've juiced everything you want out of the scene. You totally feel confident that like mm-hmm. you've got it on the book and then also, you know, with yeah. enough alts. Well, I'll caveat everything I said with the fact that we are dealing with a very emotionally intense show. It's about a guy mm-hmm. finding out that his wife is cheating on him. So like we had to get all these emotional alts because it's a very touchy and sensitive line we're ta- we're mm-hmm. walking when we're when we're telling the story. We we don't want to go schmaltzy, mm-hmm. but sometimes you need it sad. Sometimes you you sort of want to play counterpoint to like, this is a sad scene, but what if we play it happy? So we want those options just so we aren't making a show that feels, uh, you know, standard or trite mm-hmm. or oh, another breakup. Story. Yeah, on the nose. So that's why I, in other comedies with different tones, you don't. In Kimmy Schmidt, you don't need an emotional alt. You just want maybe three or four other jokes that could fit into this slot. Right, you know, right, right. Um, what was the original question? I'm saying, uh, just how do you know when you feel like you've because you're unlocking like all of these other alternative ideas? That's kind of a Pandora's box. Yeah, I think with certain scenes, you know, you're like, I think we've found something different and cool here, mm-hmm. and it's really cool to you're like, okay, I think I think we got it. You can also feel your actors lose steam. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, they they're tapped out. They don't have any emotional variation. We have our sort of check list of like we got the happy we got the sad we got the middle if the actors aren't feeling it we aren't coming up with other ideas we, we can move okay. on yeah there are sometimes where a scene's not working and then you'd have to be like let's figure this out and until we figure this out we why shoot a scene that's not working at all mm-hmm. you know it's better to spend a little bit of time figuring out how it will work rather than just shooting it 
the way it's scripted or the way you figured it out and just like keeping that for the edit because that will just see the cutting room floor otherwise. And you're spending a little bit more time in a scene and making it work. It saves you from wasting all that time and energy on the scene if you just know it's going to get cut otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's like the luxury of working on an HBO show. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of luxuries, but there were times when things were a little bit slower than a run and gun low budget shoot. You know, there's there's always a trade off. Big budget stuff has its own luxuries, but small budget stuff has its luxuries of like when I was shooting the morning after in a room with two people, it was just the luxury of being able to do whatever we wanted, Mm -hmm. not having to change lights every time we wanted to try something new. Like, oh, you know what? Let's flip the camera around. Let's go to the other side because that was an amazing moment and it'll take one second just to flip the camera to over here. Right. So if for some reason we pushed in and then want to come back out, that's not going to happen. That's it takes 10 minutes just to switch our mags. Right. Like minimum. So like you can't do that. Right. You don't, you really have to cover your bases when you're in the setup because there's no going back. So on set a lot of times, I mean, I always do series because I know editors don't like it and it's frustrating because a lot of times people miss stuff that I shot. Like the editor's like, Oh, I didn't realize there's like another take Mm -hmm. after this first take, but calling cut, if, if you go cut, let's go again right away. No one's ready to go again. Right? Yeah. Makeup runs in, makeup is the light thing. Oh, this truck just started moving. This yeah. guy, you know, so it's like, okay, guys, let's reset and let's, let's do another one. I always do that. Like without cutting, obviously yeah. shooting film, it's different, but the way yeah. I always like to do it with, in terms of just like how I like to structure my, my takes, it was always like, let's do the loosey goosey fun version. Mm-hmm. Let's just like go off script, do what feels right. Just like, let's have that juice of trying a scene for the first time and, and like seeing what language feels right and the jokes that pop into your head, especially with someone like Pete or Thomas Middleditch or all these hilarious people that I've had the pleasure of working with. You give them that playtime mm-hmm. and then you sort of check off everything you got and then take two, you start whittling it down to oh. more like the script. And then, then you just basically by the end, they're like, all right, we just need to pick up this line again, this line again, this line again. I love that riff. So maybe let's pick that up again. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're just like checking off your script, but letting them play as much as possible. That's really interesting because I feel like I go the opposite mm. order. Mm-hmm. I start on book and then kind of let it get looser and looser right, as we go. Because you think the worst case scenario, well, we got what? Yeah, we, we get yeah. what we need. But again, but that's really interesting. I, yeah. I, I maybe I'll try that. I would try that because yeah. it frees their head. Because mm-hmm. when they're yeah. when they're going on book. Maybe they, they don't have all their lines perfectly and that's almost good initially because then they'll just say what feels right and natural and their mind is freer. Mm-hmm. When you're like, let's get the script, I think right, their, their, their minds yeah. clamp down onto yeah. the lines. So do you find yourself using your first take often? There's so many times in our Batman sketches that the funniest joke in it was not planned, was just a riff. Huh. It was just a riff that we're like, I don't know, let's see what this takes like if you just go bananas. If you like play it crazy. And that's your first take. First take, second take. You know, in the first three or four takes, I just let it go loose. And then I slowly start whittling it into the script. And or I'm sort of rewriting and thinking of the edit on the fly. I'm like, well, that's in. Mm -hmm. So we don't really need this anymore. I often say in the comic book of my mind, what panels are missing? Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to fill in these couple panels. By the end, I can keep track of sort of what has been filled in and what, oh shit, this new panel is here. Well, I don't need these anymore because this right. one's so good that like that's the joke of this moment. Yeah, right? that's so fascinating because yeah. I feel like normally I want to just fill all of the panels in first yeah. and then add 
and try and squeeze the new ones in. Yeah. But one but, argument for what Oren is yeah. saying, but I'm, I'm like you, I usually am like, okay, well, if we, if like the camera explodes after this take, we'll know we have like yeah. right. the pipe that we need for the scene or whatever. But usually the first few takes is when like the camera's messing up and the things aren't mm-hmm. perfect anyway. So you might as well just have, let them do it. Yeah. 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 And it's Experiment also, there. it's also very much who you're shooting for and what you're shooting. Like if you're shooting for a client, get what they want and then have your fun because you need to get what they want. But these were all like when Pete and I were shooting the Pete Holmes show and the Batman and all the sketches we did, it's just about making the funniest thing. Mm -hmm. And usually they're very dialogue based. So you don't need to like do action shots. It's just like there's a camera on you. And that's why when shooting sketches to prevent the issue of sacrificing some lighting for three camera, but I would always do stacked cameras, mm-hmm. like a medium and a close at the same time, because asking someone to redo a riff or to redo an improv, just it doesn't have the magic of that first time. And you just need to get it in both because being able to cut in the middle of an amazing improv, like, oh shit, they got it twice. Like fooling people into thinking that like, you got that twice. You got that amazing riff twice from this guy. It's, it's just great. Yeah. That is my, when I told funnier or Die, I was like, if we're doing all this stuff, you better give me like a second camera like in one day. So yeah, I said maybe. Yeah. And if you're doing like a crazy action thing that is very specific, right? you can't do it that way. You have to get your pipe, as you were saying, if you're doing a true narrative for sketch or for a scene in a film or whatever that feels like it has a comedic arc, that's, that's what I would do. I would do the improvising first. Right. Yeah. Well, I feel like also like, so typically you guys have a very clear game for the sketch and then also each character, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, Batman is going to just say crazy, insane, stupid things. Mm-hmm. And then the villain is always going to kind of dismantle that. And that was right. kind of how the Pete Holmes show was as well, more yeah. or less, right? And the Pete Holmes show, we had this crazy thing where we had to shoot eight sketches in a day. Like, right. just so, because, like Street Fighter stuff. Yeah, so right. we, you know, we did the same thing. We call it joke mining, where we pick one situation that we can come up with a bunch of scenarios to, and then we can just crank them out because we didn't have the time to do individual sketches all the time. Like it was very rare where I could just spend half a day mm-hmm. on one sketch. So we just came up with these ideas that involved Pete sitting down at a desk and we'd roll different characters in, shoot them three camera, four or five takes each sketch, move it along. So we'd shoot eight in a day. You know, I, I hadn't ever made the connection, but we were talking before about back in the day with like Adam.com and stuff. Mm-hmm. You guys did like, was it just called Doctor? Yeah. And yeah, we just basically did Doctor. Just, just <laughs> Pete was a bad doctor. Yeah. That was inspired, the first Doctor sketches were inspired by Pete's New Yorker cartoon. So we wanted to do like the sketch version of a one panel cartoon. Oh, funny. Huh. So th- again, that's like, you know, joke mining. Yeah. We're like, why have one four-minute sketch with a bunch of doctor jokes when you can have 10 30-second sketches, each one exploring one doctor joke? Right. Especially for the web where you, series is fun and, and like you just get to play in a world for a brief moment and that's okay. You don't have any time constraints to fill. You're like, right. I don't know, this one's 30 seconds, this one's a minute, who cares? And then you watch all of them. And you watch all of them because right. each one... so many views. Okay, Mr. McCarthy, 
Uh, I see you're suffering from some persistent aches and pains, is that right? Yeah. Well, I'm going to suggest something a little different. I think we should try acupuncture. Let's do it. Yeah? Yeah. Great. Why don't you tell me specifically where the pain is so I can determine the corresponding chi center and determine where we should put the needles? It's all in my lower back. Your lower back. Okay. Well, based on what you've told me, I think we should put needles into the shaft and then also the head of your penis. What's that? I'm going to put needles into the shaft first and then the head of your penis. I think this will relieve your pain. Did I say lower back? You said lower back. Yeah. I meant upper back. Nowadays, upper. YouTube, it would just auto flow into exactly, the next yeah. video. Yeah. So we did, we did a bunch of those. We did, we did doctor, we did cashier. <laughs> when Pete and Matt and I went to the Super Bowl with the, the Doritos contest, we were in a hotel and I brought my camera and we're like, I don't know, let's shoot hotel. <laughs> and so we just shot a bunch of eight hotel sketches where Pete, we stole a name tag gave it to him and it was just him being an annoying like bellman you know like so funny and just we shot eight of them because we're like what are what's every funny hotel sketch we can come up with and let's shoot them all and then because they're so short you can just if they aren't the best thing in the world or they're just one stupid joke by the time someone can hate it it's already over right Right. it's like vine kind of pre-vine yeah vine but not the people who would beat me up in high school (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just talking into a camera right or doing push-ups yeah with like their dog why on their are back. popular it's like <laughs> yeah it it's is the weird. popular cool kids getting a new platform it's just making a bunch of ryan seacrests right or like super pretty girls or uh, yeah yeah I, comedy was the one thing for us right <laughs> oh yeah that was the whole matt's matt's argument when sam reich was on is that comedy is not for cool kids yeah yeah. Um, <laughs> so my question that I want to ask every guest, though I've been forgetting, is if you had to give one piece of advice to someone that just graduated from film school and just moved to either L.A. or New York that wants to be a director, what would you give them? Like, how, how do you get into directing today in 2016? Get into it? Or, if, I mean, get into it is, all I can describe is how I did it. Like, if and, you were starting today, would you do the exact same thing you did? Or is there something you would focus it's on? It's such a different scene now. Cameras are cheaper. The internet's everywhere. There's a plethora of content out there. So I think now more than ever, it's just about doing something that's so specifically you because in order to cut through the noise of the content, I mean, there's two types of videos on the internet. There's like films and video, and then there's content, which is the dark matter between the good stuff. There's just the filler video. Don't do that filler video. Do stuff that is uniquely you and interesting and cool and try to think of something that only you could think of or at least makes you so happy to see that love and that passion will translate to people watching it and then just do it about a hundred more times, you know, because that first one's probably, it's probably really shitty. Like everyone's first video. Right. So make a lot of stuff and then show it to people. And then show it to people. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, the way I did it but, was just... But not like a, don't go out and write a feature film and try to make that before you've done anything else. Even now, even with my credits, which on paper are great, like Daily Show and, and like mega viral videos and producing a late night show after Conan and now HBO, it's still fucking so hard to get into the episodic directing world that... All you can do is make your own shit and then try not to get bogged down with the entertainment industry 
because that gets in the way of making some shit. Like for a year between the Pete Holmes show and this, I was in a real low place and like thought like, like, what the fuck is this industry? I was doing these garbage shows that weren't inspiring and I was just doing it for the money. And so I shot this one show. I worked on this one show and it, it was just so soul sucking that I just took every cent I made and just threw it into my short film. And I was like, I have to make something that is personal and is mine because that means more than any credit or any gig, any connection that you have is just showing that you can do something that's uniquely you and that is interesting and cool that, and it shows your sensibility. And were you satisfied with the result, like your short? I'm so, I'm really happy with my short. I learned a ton. I bit off more than I could chew. I shot a 30 page short over four days with no money. Well, respectively, right. very, very low budget for four days of shooting. Yeah, but I'm, I'm very happy with everyone who was in it. I thought the performances were great. We had to like, because it was low budget, we had to cut scenes on the fly because we just didn't have the money or the time. I got deliriously sick through it and it was very challenging for me and the crew. So next time around, I want to make something a little simpler working within my, my means. This was my big ambitious, like, fuck it, let's give it a shot. But I'm happy it's out there. And I got to make a lot of really good friends. And I got to shoot in New York City. And Serendipity brought me really cool new friends. Wait, you shot at Serendipity? I shot, yeah, I shot at Serendipity. <laughs> That's so cool, man. It's it's like my, like some cool stuff happened. Like my, D, my DP got a job. So we had to bail last minute. And then I contacted a friend who knew Ryan McFall, who I would later work with on Crashing. Ryan, the nice guy he is, is like, I was like, I need a DP. I know you're a director. Do you have anyone in New York City? He's like, oh, I know this guy. This guy, Smokey Nelson. I just rapped with him. Maybe he'd do it. And then I met this guy, Smokey, and he was awesome. He brought his crew mm-hmm. and his really cool run and gun mentality to it and his like really good temperament. And I made, made this amazing contact. So whenever I need to shoot something in New York, he'll be the first guy I call. So I don't know. I'm super happy with it. And now I'm in the phase where I've released it online and I need to figure out like, where do I screen it? What's the next step to mm-hmm. get it in front of eyeballs? Because the initial online push is over. Right. And do you, sorry, I'm, I'm trying to end this conversation, but I'm just so fascinated <laughs> by each part. Do you like send it to Judd Apatow? Is that a move? Or do you not do that? Judd knows I made a short with Pete and I don't know if he's watched it, but that's not the move. I don't, I'm not using it as a piece to, try to push in front of the people who will advance my career. I want to show it to just a bunch of people mm-hmm. who may enjoy it. Yeah. You know, I, I think as soon as you start focusing on, I made it because I wanted to push myself to make something longer than I've ever made before and try to do something that's a little more personal and not so tonally broad and sketchy. And I just wanted to put it out there. And then I think because the internet and how it's my entire career has worked is put it online, send it to your friends and your family Whenever anyone mentions it, you know, send it along if people ask you, like, hey, what have you done? And then it'll get to the people that you needed to get it to. I don't want to, the last thing you want to do is is be pushy to a, to very busy people. Yeah, part of the point, correct me if I'm wrong, is just like, you know, you're spreading your wings a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, like so often we're working with clients or you're working on something that's a big giant machine where you have all these people who have to say yes or no or whatever. Mm-hmm. This is just like you you know, like putting on a show, yeah. like, you know, yeah. not was, to diminish it or anything. You did it professionally and it was great, all of yeah. that stuff. But like, this is your baby, basically. Yeah. It was my baby. It was my passion project. And it's, um, I think that's also something for someone starting out and directing. 
No one's going to hire you to do something unless you've already done it, which seems like a catch 22. Like no one's going to hire you to shoot a TV show unless you've shot a TV show, because it's so much easier to look at a guy who shot a TV show and be like, well, he did a great job on that. I'm going to hire that guy. So you need to basically shoot a pilot or shoot a teaser or a pilot presentation on your own, figure out how to do that cheaply or within your means or save up for that. I could have bought an inexpensive car for the price of my short film, but I was like, um, it's a far better use of that money. You spend so much time in New York. Exactly. I don't need that car. I ride a 96 Honda Civic. It's amazing. And it gets me around. And I was like, I don't need a new car. I need, I want to make this stuff. And it was a deeply personal story about a very terrible breakup I went through. And it was weirdly redemptive because my, the girl, it was based off of found it online. I didn't send it to her, but then there was a nice, very quick exchange between the two of us that sort of resolved any latent issues that we had. So that was a sort of happy conclusion to it all. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. You should tack that onto the end of the credit. Yeah, exactly. Like, and here's the email exchange <laughs> yeah, that yeah. followed. Right. Just like in YouTube annotations. Yeah, exactly. You can't change the file. Yeah, <laughs> subscribe here. Check yeah. out the email exchange where we explain how we weren't mature enough to deal with this situation responsibly here. Yeah. Wow. Well, cool. Well, I have a zillion more questions, but maybe we'll have you back on yeah. at some point. Because uh, we need to get to a segment we call Unpaid Endorsements. So first unpaid endorsement is, um, I'll, I'll go technical first. I've been using this amazing program called Workflowy. Mm, you guys know yeah. it? I love yeah, a did workflow. Did John August suggest it once on program, Script yeah. Notes? Oh, I don't is know. Is it like a list maker? It's a list outline maker. Yes. Uh, yeah, I've boy. been working remotely with a buddy of mine in New York, and it's the simplest thing. It's just an outline. So, But when you're outlining a story, sometimes when you do it on Google Docs or Word Doc, it just gets unwieldy. It's a 20-page mm-hmm. document, and you're like, oh, I need to... I want to add something to that one character description. Where is that? I need to go search the document. It creates an outline, but then you can expand. Then you can click on the heading of a bullet and it'll bring you into that bullet. So you're only concentrating on that category, but you can always scale out. So I'm writing a movie right now and then I can concentrate on each scene, Mm -hmm. but then I can scale back out to the master outline and then I can scale out to like the full feature of each And it's a treatment? Are you writing it like screenplay format? No, that's just the the outline. Okay. So so it's almost like note cards, but digital and like it's, it's expandable. Whatever, it's just a expandable and contractible outline. But it because it's so easily navigable, it just makes life so easy. And it's you can share certain bullets with people. So me and my friend are just like writing down notes, but we get to categorize them into different things. Like here are character ideas. So if I ever need to like look up a character, I can go click click rather than scanning a huge document. And you, you can put your whole life there. Like I have every project I'm working on all at once, but because you can sort of zoom in mm-hmm. over and over again to infinity, you can focus on individual little bullets rather than getting sort of lost in the weeds of a giant document. So that's, it's very technical, but it's a great organization tool just for literally everything I do. And do you have to pay for it to put in this unlimited bullet points or something there's, um, like that? There's a pro version. I think you get 250 bullets a month which I, I don't use. I think pro is for companies who use it mm-hmm. or something like that. But for like writing a screenplay or like breaking a, a TV show or collaborating on just like taking notes, especially for like we're coming up with a TV show idea and we have a million notes about different categories and characters and stuff like that. But when it comes time to write that character, you don't need to sift through a huge document. You just want to go to that character and then 
it's all there in front of you. So Workflowy is my first work paid endorsement. Love it. I love it. Mm. And then the second one is vague, and I mentioned this prior, but if you want to direct, read comic books. I'd say it's just you're reading storyboards all day. And there, if you don't like the superhero genre, there's a million graphic novels that are that have nothing that are based in reality. But you're basically watching, you know, you're reading storyboards that can inspire camera, that can inspire pacing, that can inspire framing. And because there is no camera in a comic book, mm-hmm. and they can place the camera of the art wherever they want, it can actually inspire some really cool, seemingly impossible camera angles in film. And if you can like recreate some of these cool comic book frames and angles it really it can change the way you look at uh film is there a specific title that you find especially inspiring or one that you revisit i mean there's a couple i really love the goon mm-hmm. the goon is like this beautiful like it's beautifully painted it's like a painted comic book by this writer uh, writer artist eric powell so so good irredeemable oh, which know. is a story about what if superman cracked what if he like was so overburdened by the responsibility of saving the world that he freaked out and started killing everybody. How do you stop him? And then he ripped off your Batman show. Yeah, exactly. How, and he's a total idiot. And then Saga is one that's in process now by Brian K. Vaughn. That's just, it feels like Star Wars and that he's creating this amazing world, but it's for adults and it's it's got a whole mythology to it, but it's about growing up and having just the pains of raising a child and growing up, but it's set in the most fantastic sci-fi fantasy-ish world. And if you want something that's not sort of sci-fi and superhero-y, I would try Scalped, which is about a Native American guy who leaves his reservation and then comes back as an undercover FBI agent to root out the drug lord that operates in the reservation, but also takes care of it. So it's sort of a crisis of identity story. Oh, that sounds great. And, you know, comic book pages can be laid out in so many ways. You're like, oh, that's a montage. I'm watching a montage in panel form. Oh, this is a big full frame picture on one page. They, they decided to dedicate an entire page to this one big image. That would be like a big long shot, like that you just hover on for a while in a film. So you sort of, it gives the illusion of of time when you read it. Right. Yeah. It's comic like, books. Comic books. Check Matt's, them out. Matt's very first unpaid endorsement was for a book called Understanding Comics. Understanding, yeah, have you read Understanding Based Comics? Cloud. Oh, man, you got to read it. Yeah? It's like my favorite book. Yeah. Understanding Comics. Yeah, right. it's a comic about the... The language the of language comics. The language of comics. Yeah. Yeah. I read it. Yeah. Or it was it my just, cup of tea. So, so. I read it in college and it like blew my mind. It was yeah. like everyone was just like trading it around. It's yeah. Weird. It's also like, you know, a super fast read and stuff. Yeah. Like I totally recommend it. I'll check that. it out. I love it. I feel like I've owned like three or four copies. Like really? you, lent, you loan it to people and you're like, oh, where'd it go? And yeah. it's worth buying again. Yeah. Um, yeah. I totally recommend it. Mine's going to be really short because we're running out of time, but, and it's super technical, but something I just kind of, I've been doing a lot lately to impress clients when I'm editing stuff. So if you need to put a logo somewhere and it's just like so boring, I mean, everyone knows like, you know, if you kind of zoom it in from like 100% to like 104%, it gives it like a little bit of something. Mm-hmm. But in Adobe Premiere, which is pretty much what everyone that listens to the show uses, I think, to edit nowadays, you, you can kind of do these cool little effects. And if you add, there's like a lens flare filter that just comes with Adobe Premiere. If you just put it like on a black solid like on your on a layer over your logo and then set it to like add the opacity 
and just animate like the center of the flare just like over by a few pixels, like instant client loves the logo. Mm. Uh-huh. Um, and just add like put, a sheen to Yeah, it? I always put the flares like off the screen so you just get kind of like a glow and then they just kind of move a little bit and it's just like, I don't know. It's just, just like a little a, texture. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll show you guys some frames. But it's just like, I used to always go into After Effects and spend like two hours like trying to make a logo look better. And now mm-hmm. I spend like 10 seconds in Adobe Premiere and I get better results. We even, I just did this, edited this thing for Fox Sports. And there was this whole big thing about getting us their lo- new logo, mm-hmm. FS1, and, the, and how it looks and this whole big 3D rendering. And we finally gave it to them. And then they were like, you know what? We kind of liked what you did in the temp better, which is literally just an image of their logo, like very slowly zooming in and like a lens flare just barely cool. moving across. And you can just do it on any logo. Nice and simple. So lens flare effect in Premiere. I know it's a little like 90s, but I think it's, it's back <laughs> if, you're, if you're super subtle with it. What if it dissolves into smoke and fire? No. Do people don't think that's cool. And then the smoke yeah. and fire disappears via star wipe. Ooh, there you go. Perfect. Don't listen to those kids. <laughs> well, Again, just kidding. They're cool. Well, so my unpaid endorsement is a little abstract. Eagle-eared listeners will maybe have recognized. Every once in a while, I'll have a, I have a bedtime alarm. Mm-hmm. I have an alarm at 10 and at 11, and we record relatively late. So every once in a while, it'll, it'll ring in the show. Maybe ring in the Sam Rice show. Mm-hmm. There's a recent one where I was like, oh, I'm so stupid. I didn't turn off. But I swear by it because... The 10 o'clock one is like, oh, you know, like start winding down, like try and get another writing session in if you can. And then I'm trying really hard to be in bed by like 11, 11.30 so that I'm up at 7. And that seems like weirdly regimented, but I just know that, um, you know, I know how much sleep I need and I know that I want to wake up at a certain time because I want to beat emails. I want to get a writing session in before, mm. you know, the deluge of just like quick little emails that'll kind of distract you from writing. But so now on the new uh, iPhone, iOS 10, they have a bedtime option where you can just enter in a couple different options about how long you want to sleep and like what time you want to wake up. And it'll just kind of figure it out for you, basically. And it'll give you like options of like when you want to be reminded that it's time to go to bed. So I don't love iOS 10, but that's a feature that I think is really great. And the alarm is really cool, right? The alarm is really nice. Yeah. It's very slow. Oh, yeah. Raises the volume. Way better. Yeah. I'm similar in that I I wake up in the morning and I can't, I have a laptop on my bed and I just open it and I just start writing because I I can't even brush my teeth. Because as soon as you turn your brain on to maintenance mode Mm -hmm. and how to be a human mode, you just like, I get so caught up in that path and I'm like I just need to crank some an hour of writing out before I even move yeah yeah, yeah. I should start doing that yeah I, I'll just kind of lie in bed and then like I'll make coffee in between and I always feel like I'm losing some of it yeah know, doing that yeah I'm just like a news junkie so it's like as soon as like I turn on the flow of news headlines in the morning it's like pretty much just keep going until I go to sleep so I never have to think about anything on my own um, cool. Well, thanks so much. Guys. Yeah, thanks great. for being on here. If what, great hot Oren on Oren action. Yeah, Oren yeah. on Oren action. Oren Green. <laughs> um, if you combine our names. <laughs> Oren Brimmer, if uh, our listeners want to find out more about you, where can they find you? You can go to my website, orenbrimmer.com, Brimmer with one M. Yeah, and yeah, that's you it. tweet? I, I rarely, when I, occasionally. I'm not a big tweeter. I've been Instagramming a little bit more, but it's all my work and all the stuff that I put actual time and energy into is on my website and uh, check out Crashing which is going to come out early next year on HBO we can't wait 
If you want to find out more about the show, you can follow it at Just Shoot It Pod, or you can visit JustShootItPod.com for all of the stuff that we talked about. And you can follow me at Mr. Matt Enlow. And me at Smitey Pileg. And send us an email, send us some questions, rate us on iTunes. Thanks so much. This episode was edited by Eric Krapow. Thanks, Eric. And music was provided by the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. Thanks. Thanks, guys. But first, Oren, what have you been working on lately? But first, Oren, what have you been working on? There's a helicopter. <laughs> yeah. There's a helicopter. That's why you never do a second take. Ooh. Damn helicopters. And Betty Butter bought some butter. <laughs> okay. You think we're good? Okay. Yeah, we're good. <clears throat> but first, Oren, what have you been working on lately? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.